Welcome to Catholic Economics. I'm your host, Levi Russell, and this is Essential Reading. So today I want to continue the theme of discussing writing by Rupert J. Ederer, uh, who was an economist. Uh, he was a professor at the State University of New York at Buffalo, uh, and he was the translator of a lot of Pesha's work. And so since I've been talking about, we've been talking about Pesh a lot in this segment, uh, I thought sticking with Ederer was good. This one is a little bit more of a personal thing from him. And so maybe it will give you an idea of sort of how he be, uh, came to sort of be a follower of Pesh. Uh, and I think it's just an interesting little piece. So before I start on that, if you'd like to support the show directly, uh, I have Patreon and Subscribestar links uh, in the description. You can also support via Anchor if you like. And uh, if you'd like to contact me, please do so th via my social media links below. My DMs are open on Twitter, or you can send me an email uh, as well. So here we go. My Journey into Solidarism by Rupert J. Ederer, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York at Buffalo. At its fifth annual conference, the Society of Catholic Social Scientists presented me with the Pius XI Award. The president of the society, Stephen Crasson, had informed me previously that the honor was an appreciation for my many years of work translating into English the Lehrbuch der National Economie by the great Jesuit economist Heinrich Pesch. It was in his honor that I accepted. Except for my great respect for Pius XI, who was Pope when I was born, I would have renamed the award, in my case, the Sisyphus Award. Poor Sisyphus was the character in classical mythology who was assigned the task of rolling a huge boulder up a hill, and as he reached the top, it always slipped away and rolled back down. Translating from German a five-volume work of some 3,800 pages, complete with bibliographies, fine print, and copious footnotes, was a boulder of a job. It was done over a period of 20 years. What is more, since there are at present no prospects for publication of the completed English translation, the probability of the boulder reaching the top of the hill is still very much in doubt. My fascination with Pesh and solidarism began more than a half century ago. Shortly after I graduated from college and just prior to being drafted into the army in 1944, I came across a six-page item in The Catholic Mind, a digest of significant articles and documents published monthly by the America Press. The title was Pesh and Christian Solidarism by Joseph B. Schuler, S.J., who, was, who later served as a missionary in Nigeria. The article lifted my spirits at a time when world opinion of my native land, Germany, was arguably at an all-time low. Its author proposed that the work of this Jesuit scholar, who was virtually unknown, certainly among economists, was to Pius XI what Bishop Emmanuel Kettler had been to Leo XIII., in Schuler's words, Pesch's system for social reorganization was to form the basis of Pius's great encyclical, that Magna Carta of modern social reform. He was referring to Quadragesimo Anno, which was issued in 1931, five years after Pesch died. 
the Schuler article also put me on a track for graduate studies where, after my discharge from the army, I could learn about Pesh and his Christian solidarism. There was at the time a scant handful of scholars in the United States who knew anything about the Cologne-born Jesuit. They included Getz Briefs at Georgetown, Franz Müller at St. Thomas College in Minnesota, Father Bernard Dempsey, S.J., at St. Louis University, and Alphonse Clemens at Catholic University. I decided in favor of St. Louis University because Frederick Kinkle, head of the Catholic Central Bureau with its unique library, was also situated close by. That school made possible for me my first serious study of Quadragesimo Anno and some acquaintance with Pesh and Solidarism. I paid a visit to Frederick Kinkle soon after I began my studies. When the sage old social philosopher heard of my plans to study economics at the university, he remarked somewhat mordantly that I would be getting a slightly disinfected version of the standard neoclassical economics. As it turned out, the disinfection came from a course called Theories of the Corporate Economy, for which the textbook was a Dempsey translation of Nell Bruning's commentary on Quadragesimo Anno. That was followed at the graduate level by a course entitled, somewhat cryptically, Economic Analysis and Social Policy. Though he was a brilliant and outstanding scholar, Father Dempsey needed someone to make Pesh's original work acceptable in English. He approached Franz Müller, who again who argued against a translation of the whole lairbook, suggesting instead an abbreviated translation of significant selected excerpts. Dempsey rejected that option in no uncertain terms. Also, Müller, a recently arrived immigrant, refugee, from Germany, did not regard his command of English at that time as equal to the task. When I arrived at St. Louis School, I was, to say the least, an unknown quantity. In any case, I came into economics for the first time fresh from seminary studies in philosophy and theology. As a sympathetic and generous mentor, Father Dempsey recognized my need for full-time commitment to graduate studies. Subsequently, he arranged to have two young university students to come over from Germany, take up residence at the university, and commence work on the translation. The problem was that their command of English was not yet up to the level required for this enormous project. Soon afterwards, Bernard Dempsey was sent to India, where he was to, establish, to help establish an economics curriculum at the college in New Delhi, India. That mission resulted in a serious health problem from which the learned Jesuit never fully recovered. Upon his return, he was assigned to Marquette University in Milwaukee, where he died prematurely in 1960 at the age of 57. Meanwhile, in 1950, when I neared completion of my own graduate studies, I resolved to have a serious look at Pesha's work. However, anything more than a cursory study of the 3,800-page work would have required taking up permanent residence near one of the few libraries where the five-volume lairbook could be found. This was before the invention of the Xerox. Having recently married a dear woman with relatives situated strategically in cities like Vienna and Zurich, and with cousins of my own located in Munich, I decided to exploit this fortuitous circumstance. Germany and Austria, then still rebuilding from the rubble of World War II, were in a sorry condition. The Swiss, unscathed due to their neutrality, came to the rescue. A complete set of the lairbook in mint condition, and in its final edition, was located in Zurich. It turned out that having my own set of the Pesha's lairbook was my salvation during the early years of my teaching career. I was destined to move through a succession of small colleges where I would have been effectively cut off from Pesha's work. 
The more disenchanted I became with standard economics, whether of the still prevalent neoclassical variety or of the then highly fashionable Keynesian revision of it, the more I realized that Pesh was providing me with the antidote that enabled me to keep my equilibrium. Father Bernard Dempsey prefaced his book, The Functional Economy, with a chapter entitled, The Biography of an Unsatisfactory Science. As the years went by, while I tried to make sense of what we were supposed to be teaching our hapless students from their overpriced textbooks, I felt that that was, if anything, a courteous understatement. And simply offering a remedial one-semester course in, for example, papal social teachings, was often not as not simply compounding the confusion in students' minds. The Kinkle observation about slightly disinfected neoclassical economics kept resounding. I spoiled one summer by wading through the huge Schumpeter history of economic analysis, hoping to salvage something from the wreckage of what passed for economic science. Alas, poor Joseph. He too slipped off the deep end into the by then standard positivistic approach where nothing that presumes to make value judgments ranks as serious scientific economics. The renowned Austrian-born Harvard professor paid dubious tribute to Pesch, referring to him as that great man who was not particularly proficient in analytic economics, so that he will not be mentioned again. We all know what he means. Could it be the kind of thinking that the great Pius XII had in mind when he referred to the theory of laws of the market as a purely positivistic byproduct of neo-Kantian criticism? In a talk before delegates of the Catholic International Congresses for Social Study in 1950. Finally, one day, while preparing a lecture for my favorite course in the history of economic thought, I glanced over at the books lined up next to my desk. There, side by side with the five volumes of Pesh, which I was by then using continually for remedial work and damage control, was Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and four volumes of Karl Marx's Capital. It struck me like the proverbial ton of bricks that Smith's highly influential but dubious venture was made available in five languages, even while he lived, and that it now exists in virtually all languages. Marx's heavy, turgid, Germanic gunk, perhaps no less influential than Smith's work, but far less readable, had by then also been translated into all world languages. Yet, here was Pesch, whose work has been described as a summa economica, inaccessible to most scholars because German is not a world language in the accepted sense. There seemed to me to be something wrong with that picture. Why should one of the three seminal thinkers in the history of economic science who actually provided the materials for constructing an economic system remain unknown throughout much of the world? There are various possible answers to that question. Pesch was a German, and German stock does not rate highly in the world during the present century. However, Marx too was a product of the German universities. Pesch, on the other hand, was openly Roman Catholic, and in addition, he was a Jesuit. All the world knows about Jesuitry. What is more, he made no apologies for his faith or for his theological and philosophical orientation. His worldview came through frequently, and with unabashed candor in his work at various stages throughout the five-volume lairbook. In fact, at one point, he even allowed himself the luxury of drawing up an economic program for the Catholic Center Party, which was an open contender for political power along with the communists and Nazis during the chaotic Weimar period. One cannot help but wonder how different the course of history might have been if Germany had followed the social philosophy outlined by Pesch instead of that of the infamous Beer Hall orator. Predictably, 
Pesh had to defend himself against theologizing his economics, and he did so admirably in the forward, admirably in the forward of the final edition of the second volume. There he took the opportunity to point out that all economic systems presuppose an underlying theology and philosophy, which together he referred to as a Weltanschauung. For the old liberal economists, which ensouled the capitalistic market economy, there was the naturalistic philosophy and deistic theology of the Enlightenment. For Marx and for the socialists, it was the materialism and the Hegelian dialectic. Those who pretend to offer a value-free science are, in Pesch's terms, under the influence of a positivistic, naturalistic Weltanschauung. Whatever else may be said about Smith and Marx, and for that matter Keynes, they were scarcely value-free. I resolved at that point in my career to do what I could to eliminate one major barrier to Pesch's great work being more widely known, the language problem I could resolve, if indeed that was the main problem. A brief work by the San Francisco Jesuit Richard Mulcahy, which had appeared in the meantime, also helped to convince me more than ever that the great English-speaking parts of the world should have access to the entire Lehrbuch der National Economy. The book, with just 188 pages of text, was scarcely even a synopsis of Pesha's 3,800-page Summa Economica. I, as a non-ranking economist, could at least strive to be a competent translator. Weighing my age and mortality, I proceeded economically. The most critical and distinctive elements in the lairbook would be translated first, without regard to which of the five volumes they were in. After the introductory portions, which set forth far more clearly than most standard textbooks what economics was all about, I translated the two parts which present the quintessence of Pesh's thought. These are the chapters setting forth the social philosophy, solidarism in, solidarism in Volume 1, and the description of the social or solidaristic system of human work in Volume 2. From there, I skipped forward to Volume 5, and the unique and important chapter on the remuneration for human work, Pesh's exposition of the just wage principle. Chapters on the just price and on interest in usury were also in that last volume. From those very high-priority portions of Pesh, I was able to turn attention to his astute analyses of the rival economic philosophies, individualism and socialism, in Volume 1. The exposition of economic systems based on alternate economic philosophies were in Volume 2. Included were chapters on mercantilism, physiocracy, Smith's individualistic system of industry, and socialism as it developed when it left the drawing board in 1917. Eventually, the German Jesuit's astute critique of Malthus and his population theories also needed to be presented. Far from passé, the dour Anglican minister's analysis and prognostication still color the renewed neo-Malthusian of our own time, and it infects the thinking of astute scholars like Wilhelm Rupke. Pesch cut through the fallacies and provided the reassuring motto, If you take care of the quality of your population, you need not be concerned about its quantity. Unique to Pesch's solidarist economics and his treatment of the relationship of ethics and religion to economics. These portions are found in volumes 1 and 2, and they should be of special interest to members of the SCSS in the various social sciences. Throughout the Jesuit Economist, sustains the autonomy of economics as a science with its own formal object. Indeed, true to his Aristotelian Thomistic approach to true science, Pesch presented the economic process in its logical sequence proceeding from production to exchange to income distribution. 
That contrasts with a contrived artificial division into macroeconomics and microeconomics that became standard after Keynes revolutionized the old way of looking at economic reality. The chapter on methodology should be studied, especially by economists, but also by other social scientists. Economists have for some time now accepted the proposition that to be truly scientific, economic reality must be expressed in mathematical terms. Thus, economics progressed inevitably from, the physiocracy, from physiocracy to physics. On occasion, younger colleagues have confided to me, off the record of course, that the mathematical method in which they are totally immersed leads to dubious results and a false sense of security. That is inevitable in a science dealing with human acts, not physical laws and properties. Alfred Marshall, himself a mathematician, was far more modest about the pretensions of the mathematical approach than most contemporary economists. Then they continue mystifying their students with the elaborate mathematical models of how the economy is supposed to work. I cannot help but think of the alchemists and their self-important pretensions to be serious chemists. Pesch was on to this charade back in 1905 when he published the first edition of Volume 1 of the Lehrbuch. Finally, sections dealing with specific principles which Pius XI included in Quadragesimo Anno needed to be made available in English. I refer to the principle of subsidiarity found in Pesch's treatment of the state in Volume 1 and again in Volume 4. There we find also segments on the occupational organizations, translated variously as vocational orders and functional groups. The role of the social virtues, justice and charity, appear in Volume 3, where Pesch added the concept contributive justice to the ancient Aristotelian Thomistic schema, which included commutative, commutative justice, distributive justice, and legal justice. Justice and charity as applied to the common good became the loftier and nobler principles which Pius XI proposed for regulating economic life. If Pesch had a fault in his vast scholarly enterprise, it was his thoroughness, a trait which the world had grown to associate with German scholarship toward the end of the last century, and sometimes to shun. In developing a Soma Economica, he included material which goes well beyond what one would put in, econo put in an economics textbook for student use. However, we should recall that a lehrbook literally is a teaching guide where a teacher of economics can find a material which is adaptable for students and scholars at various levels. Thus, there are sections on economic geography and business organization, along with significant historical material. Indeed, a portion of the first volume is devoted to what some may regard as a matter for sociology and political science, included our chapters on the family, the state, and private property, which Pesch terms the pillars of the social order. For him, the state was not the enemy, as is widely suggested today in conservative circles. Instead, it is the highest natural society, standing at the end of the chain in the order of subsidiarity as the final guardian of the common good. As for the family, no one who observes the dissolution of family life in our own time could fail to notice how devastating that is also to the economic order. Pesch, incidentally, was steadfast in his belief that capitalism, barring drastic reform, would bring about the destruction of the family. A look at what is happening in American society today appears to support his prophetic insights. What the socialists proposed to do in their finely spun theories, the capitalists accomplished by making the pursuit of profits at all costs their ultimate guiding principle. The entire large five-volume lairbook is now available in English on computer disks. In raw form, it is in the hands of two SCSS members, so that whatever happens to me, the countless hours of work involved in the translation will not be lost.
At present, I am completing what I hope will be my final proofreading of the entire work. To the criticism that much material in Pesh is dated and of historical interest at best, my response is, let interested scholars decide for themselves what is relevant or useful for their own purposes. The works of Adam Smith and Karl Marx have not been purged of the significant portions addressing the historical ambience in which they appeared. Moreover, scholars, as well as those entrusted with shaping economic policies, should reflect on the wise saying of the Spanish-born philosopher George Santayana. Those who do not remember the past are condemned to relive it. In summary, there has been no other economist who reconciled his scientific effort in so serious a manner with the tenets of the Catholic faith based on its system of theology and underlying philosophical principles. One may wonder why his church, ever since Pius XI, who was Pope when Pesh completed his work on this earth, never publicly credited the man by name for his contribution to the development of its social principles. Nor have the successors, Pius XII, John XXIII, Paul VI, and John Paul II done so, even though all of them, progressively, by repeated usage, have made the word and concept solidarity a household word in Catholic social thought and beyond. An educated guess as to the reason would be that since the Catholic Church does not propose specific economic systems, for example, the often heralded Third Way, it may not allow itself a public endorsement of a man who presented a blueprint precisely for a third way between socialism and capitalism. That is what Pesch did. He was trained as an economist, and he was therefore qualified and entitled to do so. Nevertheless, starting precisely with Pius XI, the Catholic Church proceeded to promote salient features of Peschian thought. As indicated previously, what I regard as the three cardinal principles in Quadragesimo Anno were present in Pesch's work, the principle of subsidiarity, the principle of occupational groups, and the virtues of social justice and social charity as ultimate regulating principles of the social order. These three are mutually supportive of each other, like three legs of a tripod. If individuals cultivate the two virtues, and Pope Juan Paul II has told us that social charity is the same as the virtue of solidarity, much less activity will be required on part of the state to maintain sanity and stability in the social order. Likewise, the occupational groups, if they are once reconstituted, will make it easier for individuals who choose to operate with an eye always to the common good to do so. At the same time, such individuals within the framework of particular industries will help to keep the occupational organizations themselves from becoming merely selfish pressure groups which put their own narrower interests ahead of the overall common good. And ultimately, the state, which has as its object safeguarding and promoting that overall common good, is there to intervene in the event that individuals, singly or in organized groups, lose sight of it. In other words, where all of these three cardinal principles of social order are in place, each corroborates the other. The great trilogy of social teachings addressed to the economic order by Pope John Paul II provides the ultimate clear corroboration of Pescian thought. The first of the three encyclicals, Laborum Exocrans, presents a theology of work and an emphasis on the centrality of the just wage and economic life, which are concordant throughout with Pesch's presentation of human work as the principal source of the wealth of nations. The second encyclical of the trilogy, Salusitudo Rei Socialis, could justifiably bear the English title, On Solidarity. Perhaps it is its most distinctive feature is the careful development of that concept. It is here that the Pope declares solidarity 
that was central to Pesce's solidaristic economic system to be a Christian virtue. And in the Centesimus Annos, he equated solidarity with the expression social charity used by Pius XI in Quadragesimo Anno, but never defined by him. That is a very important addition to the Church's social teachings, since, since social charity was coupled with social justice as the twin virtues that were proposed by the Pope as more lofty and nobler principles for regulating the social order. Indeed, Pius XI specified that social charity, solidarity, was to be the soul of this order. As the Thomistic Summa does not offer and did not propose to offer the last word that ever needed to be said in its discipline, Pesce's Summa Economica certainly does not contain all that ever needs to be said about economics. However, what is there is bedrock, which can be built on with confidence. Pesce requires no disinfecting. Precautionary admonitions with regard to methodology can rectify present errors and avert going down wrong paths in the future. The conclusion, therefore, I would like to propose to Catholic social scientists that they should pay some attention to this neglected and nearly forgotten social scientist. In his thoroughness, he went beyond the strict boundaries which our tightly compartmented approach to the social sciences now observes. Heinrich Pesch outlined a system of economics with principles that are fully in harmony with Catholic Christian principles of theology and its Aristotelian Thomistic philosophical foundation. Indeed, he appealed to those principles in a manner that was at once refreshing and disarming. For example, no other economist began his economics textbook with a chapter entitled Man as Lord of the World According to God's Ordinance. Nor was that an unintended lapse from the serious scientific discourse. Later in the first volume, Pesch wrote, For too long has the name of God either been totally excluded from scientific discussion with a certain reticence or with tongue-in-cheek. Actually, this most holy name should be professed before the whole world, so that at least where God's dominion is acknowledged and where divine moral law is regarded with reverence, the true common good of nations can find a secure safeguard and a powerful affirmation. Heinrich Pesch did not stop at reintroducing God into the scientific discourse of economics. As a Jesuit, he could scarcely refrain from appealing also to the name of Jesus Christ. Therefore, at the end of his Ethik und Volkswirtschaft, he, said, he stated, I wish to conclude my presentation about ethics and the economy, not merely as a theologian, but also as an economist, with a grateful, unshakable, and joyous acknowledgement of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, who is not only the Savior of souls, of souls, but also a human society of states and of nations. Amid the gloom of our time, Heinrich Pesch remained hopeful. However, for him, hope was conditioned by the restoration of Christianity in the social order. When the sun sets, quote, when the sun sets in the evening, it leaves behind its light in the vault of the heavens, and its warmth without which all life would cease to be. For altogether too many souls, the night of unbelief has set in. Nevertheless, mankind still continues to always benefit from the rich heritage of Christianity. Yes, we do not, in fact, encounter a single true great idea among modern reform endeavors in the social, in the area of social policy and welfare, which does not, in the final analysis, stem from justice and charity in their Christian sense. That, however, justifies the joyous and secure hope that soon night will once again yield to the daylight, where the sunshine of Christianity will return to enlighten all souls warm all hearts, and where he whom the Christian faith has so beautifully declared to be the sole justitiae, fons amoris, viniculum charitatis, will get 
the recognition, the grateful respect, and the humble prayer which he deserves, unquote. These quotations will help to explain why I regard Heinrich Pesch as the premier Catholic economist and as an exemplar for Catholic social scientists. All right, so that's it. I'm going to see if I can put a link up to this. If it's a free download, I'm going I'm to see if I can find it and put it on there for you if you'd like to read it uh, or just keep a hold of it. Thanks for listening.